Welcome to QTalks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. This episode was sponsored by DesignSpark, design tools and resources for engineers to help make their ideas happen. I'm Thomas. And I'm Shreya, and we're your hosts for QTalks, a series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not so typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world. This week on QTalks, we are talking to Adrian Ibrahim, Head of Technology Transfer and Business Development at the Wellcome Sanger Institute. Adrian joined the Sanger Institute in 2011 to establish the translation office. With a background spanning academic research, structured finance and technology protection, Adrian was recruited to optimise the ability of the Sanger Institute to provide healthcare benefit. We're really interested in talking to Adrian about what the Sanger Institute does to help technology transfer for impact to patients. Hi Adrian, thank you very much for coming on the show with us today. Yeah, real pleasure to be here. So if you could start off with an overview of your background and your role. Yeah, happy to. So I was originally trained as a researcher. Originally I, uh, I worked in a parasitology lab at Imperial College where I used to spend my days and my evenings, as you do, mincing intestinal worms from uh, villages in Bangladesh. And uh, whilst that might not sound all that appealing, I loved it. It was great. I worked with some fantastic people. Uh, I, I really met one of my sort of few influential mentors in my life. And from there, you know, that convinced me that I wanted to go further in research and I wanted to uh, do the PhD. I did my doctoral training in a tumor virology lab. So I turned to biochemistry from there. And I spent four years, um, again, with some fantastic people, doing some really interesting research. And I enjoyed it. But despite gaining a lot from it and learning a lot from it, I was also clear that I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in a lab doing that research. Mm. It's equally fair to say that I didn't know what I did want to do. And I kind of ended up serendipitously and otherwise in a variety of roles. And amongst those, I spent a while in the corporate finance section of, of a large bank. It was very different, but there were some really, really useful skills. I learned how to model financial structures, how to structure at least the financial aspects of deals. And again, despite working with great people and learning a lot, what I actually learned first and clearest was I was absolutely not ready to let go of all the science I've done. Mm -hmm. I was actually really, really missing the science. So when I stumbled across uh, a job advert from Cancer Research UK's technology development arm, it had this spec that talked about combining knowledge of science and research, also in cancer, which is my background, with a business angle. And I thought, well, that, that's great. I feel like I'm made for this. Um, and almost 20 years ago to the day, I started at Cancer Research Technologies, it was. Um, and I've had a really fantastic 20 years, really enjoyed it, never looked back, never missed the lab, but love engaging with the science and science that hopefully has some potential for impacting society. 
Great. So what does your current role entail on a day-to-day, just so our listeners can picture it? The day-to-day is massively varied, which is really, really important for me. You know, I work in a very highly skilled, very differentiated institute. The Sanger is about genomics and biodata. We work across programs as diverse as children with rare diseases, malaria, and cancer. We see research that is very early, very late in some instances, closer to product service market. There is no standard day, but every day you're seeing technology, you're appraising technology. I am quite literally based in an innovation center amongst young emerging genomics companies. You work with CEOs on a daily basis. We work with government on a daily basis. I also chair a national committee on genomics. So the the answer is you touch upon all aspects of the innovation pathway from early science right through to programs being developed and delivered to patients um, on a a daily basis. It's fantastic. So how have you found that your background in science science as well as the structured finance angle has uh, led to your role today or helped you in your role? There's no doubt it has. At the heart of everything we do, you have to understand research, and actually you have to understand researchers, you know, how they're driven, what their key deliverables are, the pressures on them. It's a really tough career. It can be really rewarding, but it's it's difficult. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure to continually deliver on the publication. And really importantly, they lead us. We don't dictate what they do. They lead us. So that's the start of it, understanding the science. But from that point onwards, it's all about application. How can this science in any form help somebody? How can it deliver societal benefits? So you start looking at all the commercial aspects. You start thinking about the competition. You start thinking about intellectual property frameworks. You think about value creation. You think about how do you model this in a a manner that works for a small company or a large farmer, because those are very different financial structures. So I think that the marrying of the finance and the science is an absolutely perfect background for mm-hmm. this, and it's helped me enormously. And maybe just to remind some of our listeners, what is the Sanger Institute, first, and then maybe second? You've already mentioned this a little bit, but how are you helping the scientists uh, with their innovation and technology transfer activities? So the Sanger Institute is absolutely a world-leading genomics institute. We are one of the largest and certainly one of the highest quality of our type in the world. There are hallmarks, themes, if you like, that characterize Sanger science, and they are that we work on a really large scale. We generate truly enormous data sets, typically from thousands of samples, millions of data points, and we generate computational frameworks, analytical pipelines, if you like, to try and bring meaning from those. We've talked a little bit about the sort of diverse areas, so it's important to to recognize that we are a welcome trust Institute. Mm -hmm. So we share a lot of their values. And that includes the fact that we work on diseases, areas of need that affect the developed world, cancer, 
but also we have enormous focus on real unmet needs in the developing world. We have massive infectious disease programs tracking malaria surveillance on a global basis. So that's sort of a flavor of what the Sanger is mm -hmm. and it, you know, world leading in what it does. And how we help is by going to them. It's not the researcher's responsibility to say, I've done something here, it might have utility, I want to take it forward. If that happens, that's great. But actually it's our responsibility that we go to them. And we make sure we visit all of our faculty on a rolling basis. And we sit down and we try and understand their research programs. Just today, our teams reviewed all of the research programs for the next five years. It's part and parcel of what we do. And then it's our responsibility to say, you know what, this piece of work you're doing here, that could have real application in field X or area Y. And it's our responsibility to go away and do the diligence on that, to look at the robustness of the science, to look at the competitive landscape, how great an unmet need is there, if intellectual property is needed, what does that field look like? What type of patents could we file? What claims could we make? Who would we approach? What does development look like? Development's a really big one, right? It's a very, very different need for a cancer therapeutic, well-trodden pathway versus, for example, a vaccine for African animal trypanosomiasis, which is something else we're dealing with at the moment. Mm. But that's our job to do that diligence. We also have, fortunately, a proof of concept fund. It's not enormous. It's about a quarter of a million pounds a year. And that allows us to fund specific experiments that we think can perhaps bridge the gap, bring additional validation to a piece of science, basically take it to the earliest stage at which an industrial development partner, I'm talking about someone whose day job it is to develop products and services through regulatory pathways and actually distribute those amongst the population. So we try and take things to the earliest stage that they will be interested. So, you know, maybe the most important thing that I haven't mentioned that I should mm -hmm. is that we are mission driven and our mission is about societal benefit, typically healthcare benefit, ahead of return on investment. We are not here to maximize the money we make. We are not here to take technology to an inflection point where spending X will give us back 2X if we're successful. We're here to take it to the point at which someone who is skilled and expert in product development will take it further and then we go back to the beginning. Mm -hmm. So though that marketing piece is also our responsibility. Mm -hmm. And then if you're fortunate enough to get a partner that's interested, and the reality is most academic technologies have somewhere between one and zero partners that are interested. Mm -hmm. If you get one of those, you get the fun of doing the negotiation, doing the deal. And then depending on what organization that is, you have a commitment to follow it up, make sure they actually develop. So one of the big differences between us and a more corporate environment is because it's not about money, it's about developing the technology. We will never give something to a partner that shelves a technology. Mm -hmm. That achieves nothing for us. So if they don't develop, it comes back to us. And you already mentioned that a lot, if not all of the work that's done at the Sanger is, is very bottom up. So it's very research driven on the one side. Then on the other side, you're very impact focused. So you want to achieve as much an impact as, as possible. How do you assess that impact? Broadly is the answer. So when, when we think about impacts, 
we do think about it in literally the broadest sense we can. And that, that manifests in a couple of ways. So I've mentioned that I have a proof of concept fund. Mm -hmm. I will probably have funded as many programs in cancer therapeutics as I have in malaria surveillance. So there, you, you know, it, it's clearly not financial. It's about can we affect vast populations in a different part of the world to perhaps extend survival, limit infection rates. So that's one way of doing it. The other approach we take is we take a really strong view on non-exclusive distribution, mm -hmm. whether that's knowledge or materials or patents. So we will go further than most of our peer organizations in trying to have multiple licensees for any technologies. Even in some instances, such as new spin-out companies, where you could argue whether or not it's the right approach to take, mm -hmm. that is our default. We have to really make an incredibly strong case that the best scenario for global society is not to have something non-exclusive if we're going to go that route. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned industry partners. Could you talk about who they are and how that affects the ethics of your decisions in terms of who you suggest the researchers partner up with um, in terms of access to population and the wider benefit? So really importantly, who they are is dynamic. It's evolving. You know, on a really broad brush basis, in my previous life, and I was at Cancer Research UK's technology arm until 2011, mm -hmm. the partner was typically a pharma or a biotech. But healthcare is now diverging across different organizations. Of course, it's still pharma. Of course, it's still biotech. But actually, the big data companies, other technology companies, we talk a lot about artificial intelligence, machine learning, the capabilities of people like Google and Amazon and their efforts to enter into the healthcare market. So, so the who is now a broader playing field. How do we assess? So I wouldn't be honest if I said we always have the choice of many. It's really the case of do we have a partner or one or two partners? We do do checks, if you like, diligence on all of our partners. On the one hand, we can contractually regulate what they do, how they develop, milestone those, put in expectations, and put in the ability in a contract to claw back technology if they're not doing that. On the other hand, we look at their financial stability. We consider whether or not there will be any reputational damage to the institute in engaging with these. And whilst I can't name companies, I can say that we have declined to engage with certain partners in the past because of some of their ethical practices. So you've already started to explain a little bit the technology transfer mechanisms. Can you give us an idea of which mechanisms you use most of the time? Is that licenses? Is that spin-outs? Can you give us some form of percentage estimate? I, I couldn't give you a percentage, but I can give you a feel mm -hmm. for what we do. And it's likely different to a standard university, for example. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's different is because we have a different infrastructure mm -hmm. and a different capability to 
most of our peer organizations. So in a snapshot, Sanger is around 1,200 people. We have only 30-odd faculty, and we have hundreds of highly skilled technical experts that support them through pipelines, as we call them. So for example, DNA sequencing pipelines, computational genomics pipelines, model system pipelines. And they, they can feed in enormous, highly characterized resources to these guys. So our infrastructure is more akin to in industry mm -hmm. than it is to academia because we have these large capabilities that support our people. Now, because we have these pipelines and platforms, they lend themselves to two things. They lend themselves towards spin-out companies. And when we start a spin-out company, which is not a common event, but we've done a few and many of them have been successful, one hasn't, and that's just part and parcel of the process. What we've done is externalize an entire platform. So this is very different to your traditional drug discovery type activity where you may have a couple of founders and a few composition of matter patents on which they are the main inventors. We're externalizing pipelines that have perhaps 20 to 30 pieces of software and scripts making them up that were contributed to by perhaps up to 100 people over a decade. Mm. Now, that's not a trivial thing to do. It's softer IP in some respects, but it's harder to transfer in others. So for those reasons, we have spent out another number of companies in the space of cancer signatures and also more recently in the space of the microbiome. And it's really significantly a great company in looking at the genetics of rare diseases, mm -hmm. initially in children and then in broader populations. So we have a capability that lends itself towards spin-outs. We also have a capability that attracts large pharma collaborations. And I will predictably perhaps give you what I think is the best example mm -hmm. of this. We have a program that we call Open Targets. This program is populated by ourselves, our sister institute, which is the European Bioinformatics Institute, so on our site, 30 feet apart, you have a world-leading genomics institute and a world-leading informatics institute and five pharma partners, the first of which was GSK. Now, this collaborative was formed on the basis that if you develop a medicine against a target which has strong genetic association with the disease, that medicine is two to fourfold more likely to reach a patient to reach the market. Now, in a process that takes 12 to 15 years and costs on average $2 billion, if you can change your odds by two to fourfold, you're doing an amazing thing. And GSK were the first people to really buy into this. And we sat down with them, we explored possibilities. And Patrick Valance, who was a very senior R&D member at the time, he said, I, I know what I'd love to do with you guys. It has to be with both of you because of your incredible scale across wet, experimental, and dry informatic capability. And we want to generate new, enormous data sets across disease types, aggregate those with existing data sets, and create new computational approaches to mine targets, targets with the strongest genetic association to the disease. And we want to start 
medicinal programs, chemistry programs against those targets. Mm -hmm. That program has grown. It started in around March 2014, I believe, to Five Pharma, Sanger EBI, and probably a total investment of around 100 million pounds. Now, what's really amazing about this, you know, beyond the fact that GSK engaged with us early and took this risk early, is that this is a pre-competitive collaboration. So all the research, all the data that is funded by those organizations becomes available to the entire world, to their competitors. So, you know, you ask yourself, why would they do it? Why would people put so much money into a collaboration where everyone else also benefits? And the answer is several fold. One is we collectively decide which programs to do. Everybody has a veto. It has never, ever been used. The second one is you have early sight of results. Time is a real advantage for industry. And with the best one in the world, it takes really quite a long period to aggregate the results of these very large-scale studies, to analyze them, and to then go through the publication process. And the third one is they have access to a really unique competence and capability, and they can start to build that in-house. So, you know, this really moves the line for what is seen as competitive versus pre-competitive. And we know that we have programs in all of those companies and others that have only come about because of that collaboration. Mm -hmm. So do you think it's valuable for researchers who have technology that they've developed within their lab that they want to spin out and have potentially developed it into their own company to exit and sell it in, onto a pharma company or develop it in collaboration side by side? And do you think that is possible? I think... Exiting a spin-out is often not a choice. Maturing a spin-out is difficult. Starting a spin-out is difficult. I see that as almost a market test. I think it's great that we have more and more scientists at every level, I should say, from professors through doctors right down to students. The last spin-out from Sanger was three fantastic students. I think it's great that we have more people wanting to do this. I think an understanding of the commitment to spin out and how challenging it is to raise finance is perhaps underappreciated. And I think whilst every business plan has an exit in it, I think it's more important to see that you have a capability and some sort of competitive advantage because the reality is that business plan will morph, it will change and it might change really early. And your perception, the standard line, we will IPO in five years. Well, the IPO market will probably be shut in five years. It might always be shut in the UK. You know, the concept that a farmer will want to buy you, well, those are sort of the lucky few. I think there's an enormous uh, worth in trying to incubate and nurture your technology and deliver proof of concept to the point that pharma are interested to engage with you as a strategic partner. Mm -hmm. And then if later down the line, one or other of those wants to buy you, and that can be a fantastic outcome. So I think now's probably a good time to discuss a potential case study. So you mentioned that you have um, seen through a few spin outs in your time, one of them was microbiome. Um, so I think it would be interesting to hear about the practicalities of that, the considerations that you went through, and some things that are important for people who are considering doing the same to know in advance. 
So Microbiotica, which is our microbiome company, is the last company we span out. That was in December 2016. The microbiome is a term for the tens of trillions of bacteria that live in us and on us. Mm -hmm. So we, we are made up of something of the order of 40 trillion cells of our own. And we have more than 40 trillion bacteria that live on our skin, in our guts and elsewhere. There has been an increasing understanding that the microbiome collectively has a very large impact on our health. Initially in intestinal diseases, um, antibiotic resistance diseases of the gut, but actually subsequently in neurological disorders and actually also in cancer, particularly in effect of immunotherapy outcomes. Now, the time at which we started looking at microbiotica, there was very little belief in this field. I was certainly very skeptical. I still meet people who are very skeptical. There was no clinical proof of concept. And those studies, those sort of small scale studies that provided any evidence or effect were based on what is termed a fecal transplant. And that is pretty much what it sounds like. It's a fairly crude transplant of feces, assuming that they contain a representative bacterial population from a healthy donor to an unhealthy recipient. It was fairly anecdotal and small scale. Now we met with the researcher, and I think it's fair to say that he had an entrepreneurial drive. His research was largely basic, very talented individual, but massively driven to deliver a medicine to a patient based on what he had done. And that's a really important part of the spin out, the nature of the founder scientists, because it requires so much input from them post-formation. It's the opposite of a license where actually post-formation, it sort of goes over the fence and you monitor it during six monthly meetings and the like. These guys are required to be involved in the company one day a week, perhaps two days a week on an ongoing basis, more travel, engagement with VCs, engagement with other scientists, engagement with pharma. From our perspective, it was incredibly high risk, but we had gone out with a policy that we will take high risk, low barrier approaches to generating assets. So we started to file intellectual property on what I would say were technologies of questionable value at best. We used four tranches of our proof of concept fund over a four year period. We built up assets across uh, sample methodologies, software, data, therapeutic compositions. We engaged with a number of pharma and a number of VCs. But a really important point was the point at which we brought on an experienced entrepreneur who was willing to work as, I say, an entrepreneur in residence. He was sort of a visiting entrepreneur. He was not getting paid. He's a very talented guy. He bought into the science and he did a great job of working with us to co-develop a business plan and to go out collectively and raise funds. So four years later, we have a portfolio. We have a credible business plan. The traction was great, actually, uh, including with Cambridge Innovation Capital, who you will know here, mm -hmm. who we really, really love working with. And we raised £8 million. 
and that was a great outcome. 18 months later, they did a $534 million deal with Genentech. You know, that's a buy-a-dollar figure. This is not an upfront figure, but it's nevertheless an enormous validation of the underpinning science. And it turns out that that early intellectual property, the stuff that I said was, for me, very questionable value, is really, really important in how they develop their technology and their platform. So the answer is, it wasn't quick. In another instance, maybe you missed the window. It was very much based on the emerging and increasing credibility around the technology, but also really the drive of the founder scientists, the key founder scientists. And it's something that we're very pleased we've done. We don't know where that will go. In a way, our success is getting it out there to have a life of its own and a focus of its own. Mm. You mentioned that the, the founder in that particular case was involved maybe a, a day or two per, per week. Is that a typical example or would normally be a full commitment to a spin-out company required? So one of the benefits of reaching faculty level is that you, know, you, you, you will typically have uh, a lab of appropriate size, you will have a standing, you wouldn't get there without it. And you also get certain privileges in how you commercialize your technology. So at Sanger, we have a formal four plus one policy that says that all of our faculty can do anything they want for 20% of their time. They can be part of another academic organization, they can do charity work, they can be a founder in a company. That's without any penalty on their salary or their pension. Their task is to still maintain the quality and quantity of output from their group. But we did this particularly in mind with the fact that their knowledge is a key driver, particularly in the first one to two to three years of a spin-out. And it's really, really pivotal to the success of those companies in that time. So it's a fairly typical thing because they maintain their lab mm -hmm. and that's their drive in life. You know, many of these guys do not want to be a full-time business person or a full-time CSO, but they want to see their work translated. Mm -hmm. So they maintain their time in the lab, they maintain the intellectual input in the spin-outs, they get paid a bit more, they have equity of course in the company, they need to be incentivized. And yes, it is a fairly typical thing with our spin-outs and most others. One day a week is more common than two. I can see two being a real challenge. Mm -hmm. That's a very interesting case study of a recent spin-out. Um, I think it would be also interesting to discuss the example of Selexa. So it's typically regarded as one of Cambridge's most successful spin-out companies. Um, and from the history of the company that I know, there was quite a lot of back and forth of the key personnel. Um, so maybe you could talk a little bit about the development of that company and whether those sort of transitions would be expected nowadays. So there's no doubt that Selectra was absolutely pivotal, integral, in the way we have been able to leverage genomics. It's the Selexa technology that underpins the Illumina technology, which is transformational. You know, they, they hold an incredibly strong competitive position still for many years. You would argue it's unhealthy how long they've held that. 
But the fact we were able to take genomics where we took it to was because of the underpinning selector technology. I wasn't involved in that at the time. I know some of the founders, um, Shankar in particular, absolutely wonderful guy, really, really great scientist, really fantastic entrepreneur. And yes, I am aware that there was a lot of exchange with Sanger and with Cambridge. So I would argue that this sort of engagement and interaction between different academic scientists, between academics and investors, between academics and companies, is a core hallmark of every successful innovation ecosystem. You know, whenever I go to Boston, I kind of come back inspired and in awe from just how much people leverage other people and how much they give to each other. I, I, I was at a I was at a company founded by two engineers from MIT who were kind of merging engineering tech with clothing. And they, they told me a story about how they set up their lab and they called up the chief design officer from Patagonia, you know, this, this mammoth company. And he came over and he came over with his full contact list and all his, his network and his books and he gave it to them and said, good luck. Because they were so, you know, as far as he was concerned, he was just supporting the ecosystem. And the quote that sticks in my mind was, he said, I can get anything I need in terms of skills and resource within two degrees of this place. So that is really important. It does happen more now than it used to. And it's something that we're proactively trying to engineer on the Welcome Genome campus. So on the campus, we now have a much more diverse group of organizations. It was originally Sanger, and then Sanger and the European Bioinformatics Institute. And we now have a number of pharmaceutical companies. We have an innovation center that houses nine other companies. We have Health Data Research UK on site. We have the Genomics England 100,000 Genomes Project on site. It's really become a real hub for genomics, not just at the academic level, at the academic level, at the public engagement level, and at the business level. And one thing that we really try and encourage is free integration. We promote integration. You know, we, we, we hold trivial and non-trivial events just to make sure that these people engage with each other. You know, and I, I have one really good anecdotal story about how, how this has worked and can work. And it relates to one of our programs. It's a great program that was looking at how we can use whole genome sequencing to track infection outbreaks. And we had a fantastic proof of concept uh, right here at Addenbrooke's, actually. It was, at the, it was at the Rosie, which is the neonatal unit here. It's the unit where my last child was born. Mm. So neonatal, very susceptible patients, young babies, newborns. And the guys from the Rosie had had a number of MRSA cases. And using traditional microbiology approaches, they said, we can't tell if these are all sporadic different outbreaks or if there's an infection here. So our team looked at the samples and they applied whole genome sequencing. And they looked at spatial maps of where the infected children were. And they said, look, guys, these 12 or 13 cases amongst, amongst your slightly larger number, that's all one strain. That's a transmission event. And this is the person that's common to these spaces. And they deep cleaned that individual. 
I'm not entirely clear what deep cleaning means, but the infection stopped. Hmm. It's a fantastic story. And you think, great, you know, you must be able to apply this. But we have all sorts of other pressures on our NHS. They can't just adopt innovation on the basis of a small study. And even if it is effective, is it cost effective? So enter one of the CEOs of a company in our innovation center that's, that's based in San Francisco. And the European office was located in our center. Very talented guy called Paul Rhodes, uh, very academically driven. And we asked him when he came along, because he had a background that was relevant, to look at this program and to speak to some of the founders. And he came across and he said, you know what, this technology is amazing. And my clients, who are people like the Mayo Clinic and the Cleveland Clinic, mm -hmm. they don't need cost effective, they need effective, partly because they compete for custom. And if they can say, we are the best at identifying and stopping outbreaks, that's a really good thing. So Paul, together with the founding scientists, put together a company. He funded a couple of bioinformaticians who worked closely with Cambridge and with Sanger, and they've just developed the world's first fully automated 24-hour rolling uh, pipeline for identifying infection outbreaks in clinical settings. Hmm. It's absolutely amazing. Hmm. Now, he sat in a boardroom with our chair, who's David Willits, uh, some months ago, and he told the story and he said, this would not have happened even if I was five miles up the road. It's only about the proximity and the exchange. So you, you cannot overstate the importance of academics and others engaging, mixing. So now we're thinking about can we create internship programs, secondment programs just to increase that exchange. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's really, really interesting. And uh, it has been such an insightful conversation with you. Um, maybe to um, finish the podcast with one final question. I'm sure as part of your role, you attend many different networking events and you tour the world and different businesses. What have been some of the most interesting yet unexpected connections you've made during your career with Sanger? So you're right. You know, one, one of the pieces of the job that I really, really love is meeting different people, different companies. You know, you, you meet some, some people that you never imagined you'd meet. You know, you end up in a room with the Queen, Prince <laughs> Philip. I remember having a chat with David Cameron. Um, I remember meeting Will Smith, funny guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, more surprising, you, you meet someone that you were at university with 25 years ago and they're now the CEO of a company in Norway. And, wow. and all those things are great. But the people that leave the most lasting impression and the strongest impact are the patients mm -hmm. and their families. And those can be patients that have benefited from some of the healthcare outputs that have come from all of us over the years, or those that actually are desperately hoping for the next wave of innovation to help them. But what it does, regardless of which of those it is, it brings a really sharp focus on why we do what we do and how lucky we are to do it. Mm. No, that, I think this is a very nice ending mm. to the podcast. It sounds like you have a fascinating job, Adrian. Thank you so much for, for talking to us today. Thank you, guys. It's been great. It was great to talk to Adrian today. I think he gave a very unique viewpoint about what the Sanger Institute do and what they can provide. In particular, I thought that his point about their mission statement being global benefit is a very interesting one. 
by being at the intersection between academia and their industry partners, they can sort of engineer to make this happen. And I think that's a really powerful place to be. So I, I, I found that particularly interesting. Mm, I, I completely agree. And it's such a unique setup, isn't it? I mean, they're located seven miles, I believe, outside of Cambridge, mm. yet they have managed to build this incredible network of, of researchers and partners around this theme. Um, and it's a very inspiring story, mm. the, the success story of the Welcome Sanger Institute. Definitely. And I think that idea of the network is quite important for anybody looking to go into business to surround yourself by people not only that have similar but also dissimilar skills to you to be able to build that ecosystem around you. Yes. Thanks very much again to Adrian for joining us on Q Talks. This podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. And we'd also like to say a big thank you to the team at QTech who have been working hard behind the scenes. Thank you very much for listening. And please do go ahead and rate us or leave us a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can tweet us at QTech to suggest a guest or theme, or tell us about your experiences with applying technical skills at startups. You'll also find us at QTech.io slash QTalks. Mm -hmm.